This is the All-Star Charts Podcast with J.C. Peretz. Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. In this episode, J.C. sits down with Stephen Weitzel, financial advisor and managing partner at Ravel Wealth Management. J.C. loves to get different perspectives on the show, so Stephen's story and journey towards a billion dollars in assets comes with a lot of great lessons. This was a lot of fun. I hope you enjoy it. How are you, man? I am doing fantastic. How are you doing, my friend? Doing good. Doing good. Staying busy. Is this U.S. dollar index ever going to roll over or what? I'd love to see it happen. You know, as you and I have talked about on a couple of occasions, historically, you know, you overlay, you overlay nominal treasuries versus tips. And there's a pretty high correlation between that and the U.S. dollar. And even though that ratio had been breaking down in the last, you know, six to eight weeks, the U.S. dollar actually had a bid to it. And so they almost became perfectly non-correlated, right, or, or inverse to each other. Maybe, you know, maybe they're coming back together now. I think it'd be a positive for global risk assets, but we're not just we're not seeing it quite yet. All right, rock and roll. How's the golf game? Well, you know, it's kind of on hiatus here during the during the winter, but live in Atlanta. What do you guys know about winter? I know when it's forty degrees and wet outside, I don't want to play. Are you born and raised in that area? I am. Yeah, I grew up on the south side of Atlanta. You know, I lived in town for you know ten years or more. I guess twelve. You know, eleven, twelve years when I went to school and lived in town. After that, lived in Midtown. Where'd you go? You're uh, a Georgia Bulldog, right? Absolutely not. I resent <laughs> that so badly. God, was that a setup? Had to be. Come on. Come on. Everybody come on. knows. I, you're like a walking billboard for Georgia Tech. Listen, I'm right, right now, I mean, you can't see it. We got the we got the video shut off. I got my Georgia Tech Turvis in here. If you can't rep the colors right now, then don't come and look at don't come and look at me at the top. Don't come and look for me at the top. <laughs> so you stay true and true. Dude, I remember I was, man, I went to a Miami-Georgia Tech game. This this was in, this must have been like 10, 12 years ago. Megatron just torched us, dude. Torched us. You're not appropriately aging yourself there. That would have been like 14, 16 years ago. Wow. Feels like, feels like not that long ago. We went to, I remember, we went to Six Flags. We were riding roller coasters. I remember the Canes lost, but we made ourselves feel better by going to ride a roller coaster. So, yeah, right. 50, 16 years ago, yeah, you might be riding the Kyle Wright years for the Canes. 2006, right? That sounds right. Yeah, sure. 2006. 16 years ago. Wow. Holy cow. We're getting old, pal. I know. You're telling me. We got to get down. I got to get down to Atlanta. I haven't been to Atlanta in a minute. I was down in Atlanta for the Olympics back in 96. You know, my, my dad worked for Delta. And so we, you know, traveled a lot when I was a kid. And when the Olympics were in town in 96, you know, my dad was like, we're getting out of here. We got as far away as we could. We went to Alaska. That was my first trip to Alaska. I fell in love with it. I've been back four times. Yeah, I wasn't here when all that was going on. Wow. You know, I remember, I remember well. Alaska is awesome, by the way. I need to go hell skiing. They, they, they have like nice programs out there where they take you up on the helicopter. You go skiing out there on a glacier and stuff like that. That's pretty sweet. Sounds slippery. <laughs> See what you did there. So, so what happened? So you're at Georgia Tech, you're partying, playing golf, hanging out, going to football games. And then you're like, what? 
I'm going to become a financial advisor. Is that how does how does one go from one mindset to the other? So, you know, when I was in school, you didn't do any partying in college, did you? I did probably a minor amount of partying when I was in college. There were definitely some video games had early on. You know, this Georgia Tech is not a school that really allows you to neglect your studies. So I found myself second semester of my freshman year staring at the business end of some really bad grades. And I had to bootstrap my way through that one, you know, pull out a couple B's and a C to keep the Hope Scholarship. But I started working for Bank of America when I was in college and, you know, was just working in a bank, started out as a teller. And then, you know, I started like doing checking accounts and savings accounts and CDs and stuff. I'd known for a long time that I wanted to do something with money. And, you know, of course, everybody in school, you know, like they want to be an investment banker, but nobody knows what being an investment banker means. (laughs) Um, putting together PowerPoint presentations at midnight on a Saturday night for at least three, four years. Right. You know, as, as I was working at the bank, you know, and I started to, I started to meet some people and, you know, get some career advice from some folks, you know, I had people tell me, well, listen, you know, you're, you're great with the analytics and, you know, portfolio construction and, you know, I geek out on all that, but they're like, you know, you're really a, you're really a people person too. And you have this gift of gab. And so, you know, really maybe a good harmony for that would be being a financial advisor where you can walk both sides of the fence. You can be technical, analytical, build portfolios, but you get to spend your time with people. So as I got to meet people in that space, you know, I found out that it was really tailor-made for me. And so, you know, I graduated in December of 2006, started working for Bank of America Investment Services the next Monday. This was, you know, obviously December of 2006. I do, you know, the whole training class thing come out in May of 07. I ended up being the only person in my training class that didn't get canned in what probably October, November of 08, because I was the only one who was a profit center, you know, for the, in the training program, everybody else got canned, scary days. And, you know, at the time, you know, I'm searching myself to find out, you know, is this really what I want to do? You know, it became clear to me that, yeah, this is, this is what I wanted to do. You know, obviously stuck with it, fell in love with it even more. So here we are. So I, I, I know the details because you and I are friends, but do you want to get into some of the more recent scenarios, yeah. Yeah. where so, you're at now, where you came from, what you brought over? You know, being at Bank of America Investment Services and that ended up dovetailing into Merrill Lynch through the whole B of A Merrill merger acquisition. I always used to remind the people at Merrill that it was an acquisition that they, you know, they were the little dog in that in that transaction. So I was at Merrill, you know, through 2013, left to go to Morgan Stanley, you know, worked at Morgan Stanley for almost eight years, worked with some colleagues. We'd formed a team over at Morgan Stanley and, you know, had this unique investment discipline and financial planning process that we use. And so, you know, we decided, you know, we, we really, wanted to have more authority, autonomy over what we're doing and decided that the best path forward for us was 
really to get on the independent side. And so we left Morgan Stanley right at a year ago. So we just passed our one year anniversary and founded our, our firm now, Revely Wealth Management. The crazy thing was, so 2020 for us was the best year we ever had. The whole nature of our system is we're trying to participate in the uptrends of the market and avoid the downtrends in the market. So, you know, we're by and large out of the market at the end of February 2020, you know, have no idea what March holds, but, you know, you look back now and, you, and you're thankful that you missed it. Started getting back in April, May of 2020, continued to ride the trends higher through the election, even though there was a lot of concern and consternation that people had. And we had to remind them that, you know, this is about process over prediction. And, you know, we're not going to try to guess the outcome of what happens in this particular environment. And even if we knew the answer, how would we know exactly how the market was going to respond? And so, we ended up having our best year that we'd ever had in terms of absolute performance, relative outperformance. We felt like our goodwill was never going to be eclipsed that we had with our clients at the end of 2020. And so the timing ended up just being perfect for us to you know, start our own firm. And we left on January 15th, 2021. And within 90 days, we had 100% of our managed assets landed with our new custodian. You know, they, they looked at us and they were like, the fact that a, a non-protocol move could pull that off, because we couldn't solicit anybody, you know, per the terms of our uh, employment agreement with Morgan Stanley. They're like, that is absolutely unheard of. And we're like, well, listen, the, our clients have an affinity for what we do. And They've just been through the fire and they've come out better on the other end of it, doing what we do and trusting this process. And if they're not going to believe in it and follow it now, they're never going to. And so the proof's in the pudding. So, you know, here we find ourselves, you know, right around 600 million in assets, continuing to grow. You know, I've got great partners and, you know, I think the, the sky is the limit for what we have in front of us. And are your clients mostly local or are they across the country? They're scattered about. I mean, obviously, the traditionally in, in wealth management, you know, there was always kind of this geography or territory that kind of marked where your clients were. But and I think this this was part of our success that and I'm sure as you're aware, our, our industry is typically a terrible adopter of technology. And so when COVID happened, we were really quick to embrace digital. You know, everybody's on these Zooms now and everybody else that's not in financial services, they had been on Zooms and team meetings, you know, forever, not in the financial services world. And so we found a way to integrate that into our practice and not just having one-on-one -on -one discussions with clients where you could be as effective on a Zoom meeting as you could in person, but doing monthly webinars where you're inviting all your clients to come in and listen. And we're telling them, hey, this is what's going on in the market. This is what our rules-based investment discipline is showing us of how we need to be positioned right now. And we're going to tell you how 
what's going on in the market is impacting the decisions that we're making with your portfolio. And so leveraging the technology or, or you know, not being scared to adopt it into our business really allowed us to cast a much broader net for where our clients live. So now it doesn't matter if, you know, you have clients in California, New York, Florida, Texas, you know, it doesn't matter. Alaska. No clients currently in Alaska. But, get some but write-offs for your trips. We're, you know, I can get registered in Alaska and we'll be happy to, we'll be happy to onboard some clients from up that way. There you go. There you go. So you, you know, obviously we, run a technical analysis research and and data operation and a lot of our clients are financial advisors professional investors of all kinds individual investors but we certainly talk to a lot of financial advisors across the country uh, you and i've known each other for quite some time so i'm always fascinated by how financial advisors specifically incorporate technical analysis the behavior of the markets recognizing trends, how you incorporate all of those different aspects into what you do specifically as a financial advisor. You want to talk about that? I would say that the sad part of it is that m most of them probably don't, period. And most financial advisors generally. Yeah, most financial advisors generally do not. But Udu is my understanding is I think Yeah, that's yeah, that's what I understand as well. So, but for for me obviously for you and you know you're a big influence on on me and my, you know, my market, you know, my market outlook is that, you know, now that I've kind of seen the light, you know, how, how would you ever do it any other way? And so, you know, I always because wanted you could to be, you could be a masochist, for example. Right? <laughs> well, so, you know, I like a good fundamental story as much as anybody else, but at the end of the day, you know, we don't get paid to know why. You know, it's, you know, people want to know why because they they want to be smart or they want to sound smart. You know, they just want to, you know, it's just conjecture. But at the end of the day, all that matters is what is the market doing? And so, you know, when when we talk to people about our process, you know, we talk the, the first element of our process is discerning the primary trend of the market and not just the stock market, the S&P 500, large cap U.S. equities. What's the trend for mid caps? What's the trend for small caps? What's the trend for international, emerging markets, commodities, the fixed income market? Because all of these are components of a diversified portfolio. And we want to own the components that are working. And we're in traditional asset allocation. They tell you that, you know, there's some presumption that in any given year, if you own 10 different things, three are going to do well, four do okay, and three do poorly, but we don't know which one's which, so you have to own them all, all the time, and on balance, you're going to do okay. Whereas, you know, just a little bit of effort and and maybe even looking at something simple enough that my young kids could understand, what if I just chose to own the components that were in an uptrend and the ones that were going down if I just didn't own them, if I just sat in cash. That how do you define that, though, like an actual practice? Like, it's easy to say, oh, it's an uptrend, oh, it's a downtrend. But how do you actually define that? We have an, an algorithm that we've created that, you know, is looking at exponential moving averages. And so we're, we're focused primarily on price there, right? And if the 
the price of the asset class is moving higher. If it's moving from the lower left to the upper right, it's in an uptrend. We want to own it. You know, if it's moving from the upper left to the lower right, it's in a downtrend. We don't want to be in it. So, that you know, that's the first piece of the process is just understanding what's the primary trend of the market and of the asset classes within the market. From there, it's doing some intermarket analysis and identifying some trends from an intermarket perspective. So if we've established from the first part of our process that we want to be in the market because it's going up, the second piece is, well, how do we want to be in the market? You know, which areas of the market are exhibiting relative strength? And we want to have, we want to overweight relative strength and so we'll we'll look at something you know just as simple as growth versus value small versus large domestic versus international and if we can get those components right in addition to being aligned with the primary trend then we should do pretty well right i can extrapolate that to the fixed income market and i can look at you know should it be you know, investment grade over junk, right? Treasuries over junk, looking at looking at credit spreads, looking at duration. Do I want to have more floating rate versus long-term treasury bonds in the fixed income exposure? And so there are there are probably five or six intermarket ratios that you can look at as a supplement to your primary trend analysis. And then you use the information that you get from that to say, okay, what vehicles are now going to be used to construct these portfolios? And you go out and you're and you're searching for you know, ETFs, mutual funds that that reflect the output of your inner market analysis. And that's how you're going to build your portfolio. Where do commodities fit in this? I talk to a lot of financial advisors, some ignore it completely. I talk to investors, they're like, yeah, I don't invest in commodities. You know, for me, I think there's uh, certainly some home country bias there for sure. I certainly think that there is a recency bias uh, for a long time. Commodities, you know, any exposure to commodities was a mistake. You could have just owned more growth stocks. Someone like yourself, a bit more wise, a little more open-minded, someone who likes to follow trends. Where yep. does something like, you know, energy, for example, best sector last year, best sector year to date, if I'm not mistaken, or at least in the yep. conversation, oil making new seven-year highs, copper pushing up against all-time highs, CRB index making new seven-year highs. Where does all that fit in a, in, a, in a regular portfolio? Yeah. So, you know, we believe that that exposure to commodities is very important. We, we've always had a slice of the pie budgeted for commodities exposure. The reality is for years, if you've been a buy and holder of commodities, I mean, it's been it's been a disaster and a boat anchor to your portfolio. If you're aligning with the trends, you know, there there have been you know some counter cyclical rallies that you've been able to make some money in in commodities more generally over the last say seven years. 
you know, commodities were our top performing asset class exposure in the portfolio last year. You know, they turned on per our discipline in May and June of 2020. You know, obviously last year exhibited a ton of relative strength. It was a big driver of performance for us last year. And so, you know, the the way that we would the way that we're going to implement commodities or energy exposure, as you asked about in the portfolio, it could be it could be introduced in a couple of ways. A, we're going to have some exposure to a diversified commodities fund, which if it tracks the CRB index in any way, shape, or form, you know, it's probably 33 to 40 percent energy. So that's a pretty high weighting to those underlying commodities themselves. Yeah, not enough orange juice there, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You can't win them all. Oats best performer of uh, 2020 uh, 2021 oat futures. Listen, I'm going to I'm going to consider the fact that we were not overweighted those areas as us feeding the ducks, right? <laughs> we're, we're not going to catch them all, but as far as having exposure to some of the commodity centric equities, energy as an example, you know, you do you do some relative strength analysis over you know the last probably 15 18 months right and you know growth versus value has been messy if as i think back to when we we're still at morgan stanley this was kind of late summer 2020 that you know we're looking at growth versus value from a large cap perspective even from a small cap perspective very you know very extended even above the 2000 highs in that ratio. And so our our thesis at that point was we probably need to eliminate or, or greatly reduce the explicit growth exposure we might have to large caps. And you know, we're going to look for confirmation that we want more value in the portfolio. And so you know, those are still the areas when I look at our at our portfolio strategies right now, you know, we've had a number of things that have turned off because they've entered into downtrends. But the things that remain turned on are the value oriented segments, large cap, mid cap, obviously still own commodities. That's where the relative strength has been this year It's where the absolute performance has been this year. And so it's not a surprise that our inner market analysis that leads us to say, I want to be more value oriented. Well, you're going to pick up more of the energy names there. You're going to pick up some of the dirty industrials when you go there. My, my responsibility here is I don't have to be a stock picker to go in and say, oh, I want to own Chevron or Halliburton or you know ConocoPhillips necessarily. If I'm simply following the inner market analysis and I'm making some changes stylistically to the type of equity exposure that I have, you know, naturally I'm going to pick more of that up. What about globally? What about international? I mean, we talk about the exposure that the United States has to growth behind Taiwan. We ran the numbers behind Taiwan. The United States is number, number two. Number two, right? Yeah, I saw that. Most exposure, which surprised me. I figured it would be up there, but I didn't realize it was number two. I thought that was fascinating. I also yep. didn't realize Hong Kong would be last. Hong Kong has the most value exposure. But they got all those banks. They got all the banks. Yeah, well, yeah, I, just, I guess I hadn't thought it through. 
So is this Thanks, shipping the data? What? So what? What about you? So have you found yourself getting more international exposure for the for the similar reasons? We have definitely been, you know, more neutral in terms of allocations globally relative to domestic over the last, you know, twelve to fifteen months. You know, because you look historically, these ratios are very extended, albeit they they still have been in an uptrend in favor of U.S. equities. It, it seems like the the tailwinds are really set up for for foreign outperformance and because of because of the composition in terms of more value oriented areas exposure more exposure to financials more exposure to natural resources and industrials is that the reason or is there another reason that you're looking at it we're we're not going to know why for certain right so if i'm if i'm just throwing some conjecture out there you know i could say yeah it's it's maybe the fact that they have a lot more exposure to these value oriented names if the dollar obviously cracks, that's obviously a major tailwind for, you know, for foreign equities. What if it doesn't? What if the dollar rips from here? What's what's the market? What's that environment looking like if the probably, dollar's ripping? It's rip? probably not good across the board, right? But let me let me let me say this. If you're a portfolio manager, you're you're running a major pension fund out there, hundreds of billions of dollars. You know, I look at a name like Amazon. Check my math. I think Amazon may be the number 2 you know, weight in the S&P 500 behind Apple? Is it the second largest company? It's up there, right? Yeah. And so this, this company, and anecdotally, you know, I, ha I had people tell me, oh, well, you know, I could just buy Amazon, right? And I know that in a year, it's going to be worth more. I know that five years from now, it's going to be worth more. And you're like, hey, bro, Amazon hasn't made any progress since July of 2020. It's flat as a pancake. You know, I know you've covered this on some of your some of your monthly calls. You know, it had been kind of consolidating, you know, around this fib cluster or, or whatnot. But what if, you know, what if JC, what if the reason that it's consolidating there is, you know, this is one of the world's piggy banks. There's, you know, there's trillions of dollars in Amazon. You know, I think the market cap is, you know, it's north of two trillion, right? There's trillions of dollars in this company in, in equity value. And what if the big money out there that has owned it and done very well with it for many years, if they simply say, I'm going to look around the room or, you know, proverbially the entire world and I'm looking at what I could exchange my investment in Amazon for. I think that's ultimately going to have a lot of, you know, a, a lot of reason to drive capital to go elsewhere because the values are just going to be more compelling for them. Isn't that why these things get exchanged and they go through these cycles? Yeah, you know, we call it distribution. That's right. You've got phases of accumulation and you've got phases of distribution. And, you know, it seems to me, you know, like you talk about Amazon, go back to the period of 2001, you know, all throughout 2001, even into halfway through 2002, until finally it broke out at the end of 2002. Amazon was in a multi-year accumulation period. Yep. Right? It, yep. It, it kind of looks like the opposite of, of, of what it looks like now. 
there that has to have just because of the size of this company what it represents to the major us averages that has to represent a major headwind i would think for the the big us equity averages i was talking to somebody yesterday i was telling i, I started writing a commentary last year and somehow i lost it but i got to pick it up but I was writing this commentary called Pavlov's New Dog. And it was, it was about how there are these persistent trends in the financial markets that I think a lot of market participants and definitely the investing public, they just accept as gospel. And, you know, the, the biggest one is that, you know, we've been in a 40-year bull market for fixed income, right? Interest rates have been coming down since 1982. All of the analytics that have been used by and large to railroad people into 60-40 or whatever it is, asset allocation, you know, all of the data points of, by and large have been collected in this 40-year period where owning fixed income has has been accretive you know not only are you getting some yield but you're getting some price appreciation and so the whole nature of this pavlov's new dog thing is you know so you've got the dog right you're trying to you know you want him to salivate when you ring this bell because you show him food initially right so he shows up and you know you show him some food you ring the bell he associates the ringing of the bell with eating investors you know associate having fixed income in their portfolio with mitigating volatility some you know some conservative you know income that it produces maybe a little bit of price appreciation but a ballast against your equity portfolio well how long you know, let's go back to the dog example. How many times do you have to ring the bell after you've trained the dog when he shows up and you give him no food? How many times do you ring it where he unlearns coming when you ring the bell? And, you know, I think for investors, it's probably going to be a long time. You know, and, and so in, on a shorter term basis, you could say, U.S. growth stocks, which have been on fire since 2009, 2010, you know, have been had a decade of, you know, almost no down years. And I think that might be true. I don't I think that since 2010, that the NASDAQ 100 had not posted a single negative total return. And so people think these these companies are infallible. All they're going to do is make money, and and you get this virtuous cycle where they just continue to plow money into them, and and they think that it's a new paradigm, you know, all this kind of stuff. How how long do these names have to go with no return or losses before people say what? Like, wait a minute, what's going on here? And they start to allocate out of it. Probably, it's, probably a lot longer than most people would imagine. But I think you and I know better because we know all of the types of people that we're describing. We do this professionally and we really study these things. But for those people who don't do that, 
I think what we're getting at is that that probably takes a long time. You know, John Roke, one of my favorite technicians, he says, we're not in a reversion to the mean business, but a reversion beyond the mean. And so we extend to the other end. Yep. And, and so I, th I think you, you're, you're going to end up with a lot of bag holders out there. And so all, all of these things that people have favored as, you know, quote unquote staples in their portfolio and, and they're, and they're so glad that they, you know, that they'd forsaken all of these other things, you know, commodities, emerging markets, you know, value. And, you know, they're so thankful that they didn't own those things. You know, now the shoe's going to be on the other foot, potentially. So speaking of bag holders, there hasn't been a worse trade over the past decade than gold. Yep. Could own anything, anything but gold, and you would have made money. Couldn't yep. have been in a worse place. Yep. It's almost like the exact opposite of that growth trade. And you talk about Pavlov's new dog and investors having to learn new tricks. You and I were around professionally. I know. Granted, Everybody loved it. When, when gold was doing well. I mean, Stephen, I used to be a gold bug. That's a true story. I was a gold bug. I am a reformed gold bug. Now you have, you have strong opinions loosely held. Well, yeah. I mean, the market proved to me that gold was a bad idea. I mean, gold was a good idea for a long time. That changed. Yep. When did that key support break? Was it 2012, 2011? Yeah, I'll tell you exactly. Finally broke that. I'll tell you. I'll tell you exactly when it happened. It was April of 2013. Yeah. So I was at I was at Merrill at the time. It was Masters Week. I was at the Masters, and you know, and I was calling. You know, I was calling into the office to check to see how things were doing. Because I had a you know a, another you know, quote unquote, senior advisor I worked with at the time. And he had this allocation to gold. You know, how how could you not have had an allocation to gold at the time? Because everybody thought that, you know, gold was the answer for everything. Well, it's like having allocations to U.S. growth stocks now. Correct. And so. Gold had done so well for so long. About a decade, by the way. So about the same amount of time. <laughs> sure. So so this thing, this thing breaks Masters Week. And it's evident, like it was down, like, you know, we got right to that support level and it's down like five, 7% every day, a couple days in a row. But like the first day it was obvious, like, and, and I remember calling saying like, we got to go, like, we got to get out of this thing. And, you know, he was hell bent and determined that we were not, that we were not getting out of it. So I, he, was, he was ignoring price, obviously. Well, he ignored a lot of things. And so <laughs> I, I, I decided after that, you know, I was, I was unhitching my wagon there and I was, I was going to go. Uh, that's when I, I left Merrill and went to Morgan Stanley to. And this is a good, by the way, this is a good lesson for investors in general. If you recognize a stubborn manager that is in control of your assets, that's a big problem. Yes. Isn't that a great, like you saw it firsthand as an employee or a junior partner or whatever it was yep. for investors, right? I think it's important to recognize that, be aware. Like, do, uh, do I have a guy or gal who's stubborn and not willing to be open-minded and, and change their mind when the market clearly proves their thesis to be invalid? Are they willing to move on? And if your advisor is not, 
and you have a lot of stubbornness there, I think I think that's a problem. I think as investors, uh, we need to be aware of those things. What What about this idea? What about you? You have the the stubborn advisors out there, as you would call them, that uh, you know maybe they have you know, rightfully, they've kept their clients in some of these trades, right? Because there have been, there've been painful draw, you know, drawdown. There are people who still right? own gold in their portfolios from the last cycle 10 years ago. You, I mean, it's just, sure. still well, own these garbage, garbage, like what are now. So, so you on. know that, that, you know, there, there are some people out there, advisors out there, they've got a bunch of exposure to these U.S. growth stocks now. They've, there have been some painful drawdowns here over the last, you know, several years, and they've kept people in. They've told them, "Hey, you got to hang in there, ride it out, blah blah blah," and and it has come back, you know, to this point. And so every single time it happens, right? Whether it's you know whether it's early 2016, whether it's the fourth quarter of 18, COVID you know, going into the U.S. election, you know, every time they use it to reinforce, oh, you know, you, you've got you've got to stay in there. And, and I'm, we're so glad we've continued to hold these. What it, and, and I think the bigger issue is the fact that not only do you have some of these stubborn managers, that that's just kind of their default position. But what they don't recognize is that the environment that they've been in has been conducive to supporting those things what if when the when the environment changes and they retain the same stubbornness, that's when somebody's going to get hurt? So what's the solution here, right? Uh, to quote my good friend Phil Perlman, you know, Perlman's always talking about how everybody, you know, is an expert at the descriptive process. Everybody's an expert at describing what the problems are, what the issues are, but very few people focus on the prescription, right? What is the solution as a financial advisor, you know, knowing you're talking to investors right now that are listening, you know, what's the solution? I mean, besides keep an open mind and follow trends, like what do you, from practicality, what do you, what do you think the real secret sauce is? Well, of course, the, the answer for investors is to pick up the phone and call Revely Wealth Management to have a discussion. Boom. Oh, um, shameless plug, shameless plug. Uh, I like it. I like it. So, but the, the reality is I think that there most people in this business advisors they do it you know call it the old fashioned way right where they asset allocate they buy and hold and they rebalance and that's all that they're ever going to do and i and i think that clients are really waking up the the story behind the name of revely is that it's a wake up call right that we don't have to do things the same way that everybody, that the industry does it. And I think people know that there has to be a, a better way out there where I don't just have to be in the market all the time. And, you know, and there are going to be some times where I definitely want to be in. There are some times when the best answer is to just to be on the sideline. Take a, you know, take a breather. I love the piece that Willie put out a couple weeks ago where, where he was talking about, you know, how the NBA has it right, right? And that the best players, you know, they, they spend time on the bench and they get a breath. You know, investors, they, they really should do it the same way. That 
there are going to be times where take a breather. You don't have to be in the game, you know, all 48 minutes. And so that that is where, you know, things really need to change in the investor's psychology. You don't you don't have to take all the snaps. You don't have to play all the minutes. But you need to have, importantly, you've got to have a process that you use that helps you delineate when do I need to be playing? When do I not need to play? Because what you don't need to do is do it based on your gut feel, right? You've got to have some process that helps you weigh the evidence. A repeatable process. A scalable, repeatable, reliable process that can uh, that can be used in different market environments, right? That's the other thing that, you know, we'll, we'll meet with people and, you know, we'll kind of begin and we'll say, listen, you know, the, the market can do one of three things. It can go up, it can go down, it can go sideways, right? If it goes up or sideways, you know, that's probably, you know, that's probably good for you. What you want to avoid is the period of time where it goes down. And so, you don't need to have the same battle plan in each one of those environments. So understand what those environments look like and when you need to adapt. Listen, Stephen, you're preaching to the choir, buddy. I know there's a lot of people out there listening. They're like, you know, this this makes a lot of sense. Where does uh, where where can people find you? You know, t tell the people where to where to get a hold of you at the uh, country club. At the uh, the local yeah, bar, they can definitely find me at you know at the local country club. I uh, I definitely do not have a problem getting out, you know, swinging the sticks. What's your uh, handicap these days? I'm in the system at a one five, one point five. Of a one point five handicap, I do. I do not. I do not want to play at that right now. I, I would not want to have to go out and, you know, as. As I say, you know, you go out and you play with these people and they're like, you know, how many shots are you going to give me? It's like shots. Like the only time people get shots is when they go to the doctor. <laughs> Listen, people, you know, people can find us online on our website, revelywealth.com. You know, they can catch me on Twitter at Stephen Weitzel. Yeah, people, you know, give a shout out. If you have any questions, you know, give us a holler. You can email our firm info at revelywealth.com and we'll get back to you. And I encourage you, everybody out there, to do so. Give uh, give Stephen a call. I always appreciate his thoughts. We always get a good chuckle when we're uh, on the phone together and everything like that. So Mr. Whitesell also happens to be an aficionado of the big green egg, very classic. Is it a Georgian? Was that the proper nomenclature for someone from Georgia? Yeah. A Georgian? Georgian, yeah. Georgian? Yeah. Atlanta. The Georgian thing to do is, is to know yeah. a lot about the big green egg, huh? Absolutely. Yeah. I can't, I can't think of a better place to, you know, to get, to get meat from than, than off the egg. So you're a big, big fan of the big green egg really quick before we run. Why the green egg? Why is that the best smoker? It's, it's the one that I have that works, you know? And I mean, I, I love the elements to it. I mean, it's easy enough to use and you know, it's versatile. You can use it for all different types of things. I think I told you one time, the, the favorite, one of my favorite things I ever made on there was a peach cobbler was awesome. And if you've never had a smoky peach cobbler, you haven't lived. Hey, so JC, tell me what, what wine should I pair with my smoked peach cobbler? Ooh, smoked peach cobbler, huh? 
you know, you can go bubbles. You can go Blanc de Blanc if you're going to go in that direction. I would go with a Vouvray. So a Vouvray is going to be from the Loire in France. You're going to have a, a, a slight hint of resi residual sugar there. Vouvray. Uh, that's what I would. That's what I would choose. Maybe something with a little more viscosity to go with the peach cobbler. I'm thinking maybe. I mean, listen. You want to go full send? You go. You know, you can go Sartern. You know, from from France, right? I mean, just classic because you're gonna get more viscosity than you would in a Vouvray, which I kind of like that thing. Or you know what? Would you do a bourbon? What if you got I out of the wine? Bourbon. I mean, listen. If you're into bourbon, then yeah, for sure. For me personally, if I'm gonna. If I'm going to have a peach cobbler, I mean, talk about very Georgian. <laughs> if I'm going to have a peach cobbler, I'm not going to drink a bourbon. I'll save the bourbon for afterwards or before, right? Like maybe have a bourbon, then have like a glass of champagne with appetizer and then work my way there. But I wouldn't have the peach cobbler with a bourbon. Unless I'm with you and you're like, no, let's crush some bourbons and peach cobbler. In that case, I'm like, yeah, whatever, let's go. That's right. Well, listen, when when whenever you visit... I'm going to have the smoked peach cobbler is going to be the last, like after we take, after we take, you know, the butt or something off of the egg. The best protein. Okay. So you went, you went, we're talking about a smoker here. You go straight to peach cobbler. What's the protein? What's your favorite thing? You got one meal to make on that thing. You got all the time in the world. So time's not an issue. You got all day. You got nothing to do. What are you making? I mean, I'm I'm making some type of pork. You're going pork, not beef. Yeah, I'm, I'm going I'm going pork, not beef. I mean, You're I, even butt, though, not ribs. I've I've had some I've had some incredible brisket off of there, but I'm going pork. And I, but I'm telling you, I mean, it's it's hard. You know, do you go do you go butt versus ribs? The I'm saying the the baby backs on there are so good. <laughs> nice. They're, they're they're so good. Af, after a good smoke. Right. You take the you take the plate setter off for just a minute and you drop the you drop the you know the grate back on there and you get just a little singe, a little singe, direct heat, you get a little bit of char. You pull them off, let them rest. Dude, that is really good. Well, on that, we'll leave it there. Ladies and gentlemen, Stephen Weitzel, give him a buzz. We'll put all his contact information on the show notes. This was a lot of fun, man. Let's do it again. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks, everybody. My cobbler in the mail, by the way. <laughs> I don't know how well it's going to travel. We'll, we'll figure it out. You'll figure it out. You're a smart guy. All right. Appreciate it. Adios. See you, man. That's today's episode. Thanks for listening. Big ups to Stephen Weitzel for coming on the show. Make sure to give Stephen a follow on Twitter and check out Ravel Wealth Management. We'll include all the links in the show notes. You can also catch up on all prior episodes at allstarcharts.com slash podcast.